you turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We spent uh, the better part of a handful of weeks here, six, five, six weeks, maybe longer than that, studying the book of Hebrews. And uh, throughout the book, uh, the Hebrews preacher uses the word better 13 different times. Uh, something that he is trying to communicate are all the ways in which what Christ has done for us is better. A better covenant, a better promise, a better resurrection, a better country. And today we're going to hear of the better word that Jesus has spoken. If you would begin with me just simply in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the word of God and the inspiration, the challenge, the conviction, the comfort, the love, the message, the story, and so much more that it is, Lord, that draws us to you, that we would have your truth, that we would have hope and eternal life, that we would know of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. This morning, I'd ask that you would guide us and open our hearts to you, open our minds to hear from you. Stir in us conviction, stir in us, Lord, a desire to serve you with an obedient and loving heart, Lord, that our hearts would turn to you and walk with you. Today, Lord, help us to know of our forgiveness through your son, Jesus. This day, Lord, I thank you for time together to share in your word. We know your spirit is here and leading us and caring for us. Open us, Lord, to your will. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I have uh, run a race before. It was a 5K, and uh, it was the Dino Dash. Uh, I was in college. A cute girl, not Wendy, asked me to run it with her a week before it was supposed to happen. And I said, oh, sure, how hard could a 5K be? And uh, I was in similar frame, uh, and, you know, I had, like, my diet of college food, you know, so it was four or five meals a day. I mean, it was pretty steady. Uh, and so I thought, you know, one week of training would be enough for this, uh, this journey of 5K. So I trained all week. Uh, it was completely miserable and awful. I ran the race. Along the journey from the beginning to the end, I, they have those little watering stations. And I, having never run a 5K before, I just ran to each watering station and I took like a two or three minute break at each one and and drank and you know I got you know sustenance and strength and I continued on to the next watering hole and then each one they said you know you can keep running right uh, the message of Hebrews is about you know you can keep running you can keep going you can keep persevering you can keep going and the Hebrews preacher is trying to tell us that we have the sustenance and strength that we need in Christ to keep running the race well in Hebrews chapter 12, as we come off of one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, talking to us about our faith in Hebrews 11, he goes through the whole, uh, whole host of heroes of the Old Testament. And it says, therefore, in uh, chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I was kind of kicking myself last week at the end of it, uh, because I, I felt like maybe I should have included uh, these, this first section of chapter 12 in the conclusion of, yes, of last week's message. And after kicking myself around a little bit, I'm glad that I didn't, because what happens at chapter 12 is a transition, and the word therefore is an important one. Therefore, and when it's in the Bible, you've got to look what was there before it and what's going on after, and it's a transition. He's saying, of these faithful heroes, of these who had this faith in something that they couldn't see, but they believed in it, and they persevered, and they had strength, because we have those heroes, he's saying for us now, persevere in our own faith. Persevere, and the way that we do that is throwing off the sin that so easily entangles us. There is a tree, a vine, that, uh, that will grow on trees, that will strangle the, the tree that it is attached to, and it will completely eradicate the tree that it was held onto, and it will just leave the vines. And when I think about that tree, that vine, the way it eats at it, I think about sin. I think about the insidiousness of sin and the way that it works in our lives and sort of removes what's within us. And all that's left then is this sort of picture of sin and the things that we have done. If you remember uh, the guy named Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods was one of the greatest golfers of all time. I'm talking like he's in the past, but his legacy was to be the greatest golfer of all time. And then he had sin that came and was revealed, and now he is known for his sin. Sin has the power to become the reflection in our identity. It has the power to become what people remember about us. And what the Hebrews preacher is trying to teach them in the perseverance of their faith, he is trying to say to them, don't let sin be the thing that entangles you and trips you up. Don't let it be the thing that ends up defining who you are and becoming your identity. He is trying to lead the congregation along and saying, there is something so much better for us. I imagine if I were to ask you if you have wrestled with sin in your life, it's not too hard for you to come up with a few of the things that have sort of tripped you up along the way. Those things that have ate at each and every one of us. The sin of pride, the sin of gluttony, the sin of greed, the sin of, these, uh, of lust and evil desires. These things that sort of just corrupt our soul, corrupt our minds, and end up corrupting our lives. We, we know then that in Scripture, Christ is calling us away, calling us away from sin. It calls us to consider Christ who endured such opposition from sinners so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. That, that's the transition statement. Don't grow weary, don't lose heart. And so the rest of the way is an encouragement for those people who struggle with sin. So if you struggle with sin, you know, if there's any of you uh, that don't, you can leave now. But everybody else who would like to run the race well, 
who would like to persevere in strength and encouragement for those who want to be lifted up this morning and reminded of God's grace and God's forgiveness, then sit tight and listen to the message and be inspired by the Hebrews preacher who is going to do a work on our heart this morning. It says in verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You've completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as, fa- as a father addresses his son. It says, "My son, do not do not make light. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as His son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children." For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Let me just pause there for a moment. But uh, what he's saying is, is God is going to rebuke our sin. Culturally, we don't like this, right? Like culturally, if you were to rebuke anyone for their sin, we'll hear that we're judgmental, we're hateful, we're bigots, we're, you know, let's go down the list of the things we are if we say that a sin is wrong. We have a generation of children that we're trying to bring up, and what I have observed is that there's kind of two sort of ends of the spectrum. I can, I can point out a few kids that aren't disciplined. And that might mean one thing or another from one generation to the next. And what, I'm, what I have observed is that there are children who don't have someone correcting them. And what that has led to is, and as strange as this might sound, but what I observe is, is the kids who have the least amount of discipline, the least amount of someone correcting them, have the least amount of self-value and importance. If you are not protected, then whether you say it or not, you end up thinking you're not worth protecting. And this is an important developmental thing, and that's all this proverb is trying to teach us, is that a father correcting a child is a father saying, I care about you too much to let your hand touch the stove, and burn your hand, but I also care about you in the way that if your hand touches this sin, I also know that it will do harm to you and who you are. So children need correction. Now I often, sometimes not often, sometimes you run into the other end of the spectrum where it's overcorrection and it becomes abusive. I'm calling for it in the middle. <laughs> caring for your children, caring for children in our community letting them know that they're worthy of being corrected. The preacher will go on to say that they will respect their parents for correcting them. I have yet to experience that, but one moment, uh, one moment it will come. No, my children love and respect me, and they do a good job. I'm proud of them. And so this is just something that he's trying to teach us. It's just a simple illustration. It's a reminder that our sin has consequences, and our Father in heaven cares about us, and he wants to correct us and guide us as his children if god were to suddenly stop caring about our sin caring about our lives then that becomes a reflection of god no longer caring about you so the preacher is just reminding us god cares about you and he doesn't want you to fall into harm and the harm of sin jumping down then 
uh, to verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he, he could not change what he'd done. And so we, the preacher transitions from the Proverbs and the father disciplining those because he loves us. He transitions from there to the book of Genesis, and he starts talking about Esau. This comes for him as an illustration, then, to talk about the sin that entangles us, the things that we're, very thing that we are to throw off. He says that there are three things that we run into that cause problems. The roots of bitterness that cause division, the falling away of a rejection of God's grace, and sexual immorality, choosing immediate pleasure over God's gifts. If you think about your life and you think about the direction that it has gone and when you have fallen into sin, how many times has that been the result of bitterness? How many times, and James teaches us that uh, jealousy and envy are the roots of all evil. That out of them are the overflow of so much evil, out of envy, out of the bitterness in our heart. Bitterness is when we uh, see others who have it better than ourselves. Bitterness is when we look at others having it better. And that sort of anger, that sort of frustration that comes out of that, we have this sense of pride. Don't I deserve that? I know that we can struggle, all struggle with the sin of pride, of this sense of deserving, the sense of wanting, the sense of, don't, haven't I done enough to deserve this and be treated better? Bitterness is the result of looking at others having it better than ourselves. Can't sometimes handle that, but that causes this division. When we have bitterness and we look at others, then we think, well, why don't I have that? And that person suddenly stops becoming a friend and they become an enemy. They become someone that I feel spiteful and feel ill feelings toward. Bitterness that causes division is a sin that entangles us. If we're going to persevere, you have to do it together as a community. And bitterness seeks division. There is a falling away. It is a rejection of God's grace. This is the sort of heart of what the preacher is trying to get at throughout all of it. He is communicating that Jesus Christ's love is for you. That God's grace is abundantly there for all of us. And he keeps saying to them, there is nothing outside of God's grace that's going to redeem you and save you. That's going to lead you into the sanctuary with God and worship with him. He's saying if you reject that, you're reject, rejecting any hope of eternal life, any hope of forgiveness. It's all in Jesus Christ. And so we have all sort of been there, and it's that rejection of grace, and it's falling away. It's the pride of saying, I am self-sufficient. It's the pride of saying, I can do this all on my own. It's the pride of thinking that we can handle 
and we should take care of ourselves and leave everyone else out of it. It's the, it's the sin of the rejection of humility and our need for God. So the sins that entangle us, the sins that trip us up in persevering in our faith, one of them is bitterness that leads to division. The other is this falling away of this rejection of God and what he is offering you. And finally, it's the sort of sin of Netflix. It's the sin of the immediacy. It's the sin of gratification. It's the sin of uh, two-day shipping not being fast enough. It's the sin of microwave. It's the sin of the immediacy of the present. Esau, who was famished, sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. I don't know about you, but I've consumed far too much quick and easy soup in my life. And it is the Campbell's quick can, dump it in, how quick and immediate pleasure and choosing the moment to find comfort instead of waiting on the greater gifts of God. Are we communicating to our children? Are we communicating to ourselves that it is better to wait on the Lord and his good gifts or choose immediate pleasure and immediate gratification? What way is the culture set up? Immediacy. I want it now. Burger King, we can blame Burger King. I'll have it my way right away. We have this sense that if we don't get what we want right now, then somehow we are deprived. And God is offering us this gift. Is God patient? Is God slow in, in his uh, revelation of his gifts? All of the time, right? Like, I, I can't name a single time that God was like, I'll take care of this right here, right now. It's like, no. He's patient. And I think he's trying to model for us and teach us that his gifts are worth waiting for. Have you experienced the joy of waiting? The joy of God's kindness through his patience and loving kindness and his faithfulness. God is patient. God is kind. He's generous. You know, those things come after God is patient. God is waiting to bless you and care for you. We need to wait for him. But the sin of immediacy, the sin of choosing immediate pleasure and joy over endurance. If we're going to run the race well, we have to persevere together. We have to walk together. We have to go together and you have to eliminate the bitterness you have to root out the bitterness as soon as it starts you have to say i'm not going to let this bitter root cause division with the people i love and who i'm journeying with for christ and falling away from grace falling away from god there's not another way forward we can't reject god and his grace for us and as for sexual immorality we have to we have to look and examine our own selves and our own hearts. We have to examine our lives and say, where am I choosing immediacy and pleasure over God's goodness and his grace and his love? He transitions then from Genesis and Esau to then talking about Exodus and Mount Sinai. In verse 18, he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, 
to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He pieces together the Exodus story, and he starts describing Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai's story is when the Israelites are out of Egypt, and they cross, uh, they cross the Red Sea, and they enter into uh, this covenant with God. And Moses ascends the mountain, and he receives the Ten Commandments, and, it's, and they're commanded not to even touch the mountain. When he speaks, the ground shakes. The people are trembling with fear. When we think about our sin and all that separates us, the Hebrews preacher is trying to say something to us. He's trying to say, live a holy life. You are purified in Christ. Seek him and live a life that is given to God. And throw off sin that so easily entangles us. There was sin that entangled the Israel people. They were fearful because their sin separated them from God. They were fearful because if they touched the mountain, they were going to die. So they come to this mountain with fear and trembling because of the holiness of God and their own unworthiness. The preacher says to them, you haven't come to this mountain. You don't come to this mountain, you aren't saying, God, just shield me from your presence. Don't have anything to do with me. You haven't come to that mountain. He tells us that we've gone to a different mountain. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God in heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to a different mountain. You have come to a different place. And you have come to a place in which you are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, that you are cleansed, that you are purified, that you are made holy. You have entered into the sanctuary through a better sacrifice. You have entered into a better covenant through Christ and His resurrection. You have entered into a better promise because Christ has made it and He is faithful and good. And now He is saying, you haven't entered into Mount Sinai where you're begging God not to show His presence. You have entered into Mount Zion and Jerusalem and the heavenly places. You've entered with angels and you are worshiping Him. You're glorifying Him. You are there. And he says, his word speaks a better word than Abel's. Well, what did Abel's blood speak? What words did Abel speak? Abel was killed back in Genesis 4. And God, when, he, uh, when Abel was killed, he said, I, you're, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. The blood of Abel cries out. What does it cry out? What are the words of Abel? And his blood, he was righteous and he was killed unjustly. His words that he screams and cries out from the ground, the word that his blood speaks is vengeance. Would you exact justice? Would you right this wrong? But what does the blood of Jesus speak? What does it speak? I hear echoes of Mount Golgotha. And I hear the blood speak and say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. 
The blood of Jesus speaks words of grace. The blood of Jesus speaks mercy. The blood of Jesus speaks love. The blood of Jesus speaks welcome. Sinner, you are saved. The blood of Jesus speaks grace to you. It speaks welcome. That you are loved and you have Him drawing you in. Drawing you into Mount Zion. You are forgiven and you are loved. So when we think of throwing off the sin that has so easily entangled us, we think of this blood that speaks for us now. This blood that speaks for you and welcomes you and forgives you. It welcomes you into the family of God. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake it, not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This conclusion is, is that all of these things that we have wrapped ourselves up into, all of the sin that has entangled us, what will remain is not sin, but a life with God and his kingdom. And so it begs of us to ask the question, what are we living for? It asks of of you to say, will I persevere in my faith because I believe in something more than the immediate present of self-gratification and self-glory. That I would believe in glorifying God, welcoming Him, welcoming me, and me worshiping Him and living my life of thankfulness. The solution to all of this is twofold. That I would be thankful and worshipful. This is a really long sermon just to tell you two things. Thank Jesus and worship him. And live your life doing those very things every day of your life. Being thankful, writing God a thank you note in the morning. Thank you for this new day, Lord. Thank you for the breath you've given me. Thank you for the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And then at breakfast, thank you, Lord, for this day and this meal. And then when you're driving into work and saying, thank you, God, for this work that I can do, may I glorify you in it. May there be 10,000 thank yous in your day for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And let that be your worship. Let your life be worshipful. And I'll tell you, it changes your focus because then it's no longer about the sin that so easily entangles us and then it's about Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith who for our sin endured scorning and shame that we would be his that we would belong that he would say to us that his blood on the ground would cry out for us mercy forgiveness and love his blood says to you welcome you are loved friends live a life of thanksgiving 
and worship. Throw off the bitterness. Throw off the sense that you can go on your own without God. And choose today patient endurance and faithfulness in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. And we thank you for today. And we need your help. We need your blood. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness today. Lord, it is so easy for us to fall entangled to the sin that so easily discourages us and trips us up. And so, Lord, we need your grace. We need your forgiveness, Lord. None of us have arrived here sinless or perfect or with life completely figured out. But we have also arrived here with your blood sprinkled on us and we have joined together with angels. We have joined together with faithful ones who have gone before us, Lord. We stand on the shoulders of those who have been faithful and loving and seeking you. So we don't enter into a mountain of fear, but a mountain of faith. We don't enter into a place where, Lord, we are shunned by you, but a place where we are welcomed by you and loved. Lord, as we seek you, we seek holiness and purity. We seek to live a life glorifying you in all that we do. So today, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for today. And we begin, we begin our week of 10,000 thank yous today. Thank you for life and hope and mercy and love. May we glorify you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.